Good morning, and I add my words of greeting to all of you who have tuned in to worship with us this morning here at First Presbyterian Church of Greensboro. Thank you for joining us, and do be in touch with us if there is any way that we can assist you or yours during this time of separation. Let us pray. Lord, as we turn to your word again, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your law, and apply them to our individual lives as well as to the life of your church this day. We ask this in the name of the living word, Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have been uh, worshiping with us in recent weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a uh, sermon series looking at the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, seven churches of Asia, rather, the Roman province of Asia, that are found in that strange and symbolic book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. And John of Patmos, who is exiled there on a little island because of his faith, is, has this vision of the risen Christ who appears to him and gives him messages for seven of the major churches in that part of the world. And we have been trying to look at these letters and see if we can discern the will of Christ, the expectations of Christ for his people today as then. These letters were read in these seven churches. Uh, each one is addressed to specific needs and specific challenges in that congregation, in that location. And yet the messages apply to all of the churches then, and they listen to the messages even that were directed to other cities. And we dare to believe that uh, we can discern something of the will of Christ for his church today by looking at what he expected of the church in the first century. Thus far, we've considered the, the church at Ephesus, where we learned that their love was not as strong as it was at first, and we uh, suggested that a fervent love of God and neighbor uh, is critical for the life of the church. In fact, I think it's the most important thing that Jesus will say to the church then or now, that what we do, what we believe, needs to be prompted first and foremost, by our love of God and our love of neighbor. So we are to love fervently. Next, we looked at the church at uh, Smyrna, which uh, taught us that we are also, when called upon to do so, to suffer faithfully and courageously. Last week, we looked at the letter to Pergamum, and the suggestion was that we are to be people who are bound by the truth, committed to the truth, anxious to discover the truth, and to live our lives in light of the truth. This was Pergamum. It was the capital of that province uh, and a very important city, as was Ephesus and Smyrna for different reasons. We come today, we're going to look at the letter to the church at Thyatira. Um, and I am going to suggest to you that this letter is suggesting to us that we should also strive for holiness God says, you are to be holy for I am holy. What does that look like? What does that mean? Let me read to you this letter, and I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you there at home or wherever you're listening, to open your own Bible and look at this, which is probably the long. I think it is the longest of the seven letters. From Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. Let us listen again for the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of their doings. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do so, and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron hand as when clay pots are shattered even as I also received authority from my Father. To the one who conquers, I will give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Some suggest that this, the longest of the letters to the seven churches, is one that is written to the city, maybe to the church, that may have been of least importance in that realm. It was certainly different, different from the metropolis of Ephesus, differ from the beautiful, majestic city of Smyrna, different from Pergamum, which was the capital city, uh, the seat of emperor worship and government and politics in that part of the world. Thyatira, rather, was a center of commerce and trade. You can read about one of the residents of that city, Lydia, in the 16th chapter of Acts. She was a merchant who dealt with purple clothing, very expensive. Purple was just almost incredibly costly back in those days. But she dealt in purple fine fabrics um, and was a leader. She was converted uh, during one of the journeys by Paul and Silas and Timothy. She gathered with the Christians worshiping at the river. And then she invited uh, the apostles... Uh, the uh, missionaries to come and stay in her house and probably they used the house of Lydia early on as where the church in that day met once they met no longer by the river well you may not be too sure about the importance of ancient Thyatira um, but you're pretty sure probably if you listen carefully to the scripture reading this morning that you heard no mention of holiness and you're wondering if this interpretation might be somewhat off-center since the word holy doesn't appear in the letter here why am I saying it's dealing with or calling for holiness uh, you're hoping I'm wrong actually because most of us don't ever hear our name and the word holy mentioned in the same breath we don't think of ourselves as holy people because we have a different understanding of holy and holiness in our time um, the fact of the matter is Probably most of us don't aspire to be holy because holy and holiness has taken a bad rap in recent generations. 
When we hear the word holy, we often think of uh, holier than thou. Someone who sets himself apart from other people intentionally, uh, out of pride or arrogance. People who may be judgmental of others who don't come at the faith the same way they do. Um, but this is not the root meaning of holy. In the Bible, when it is applied to persons, the word holy means those who are set apart for God. Set apart by God and for God. Has nothing to do with being sanctimonious or prideful or anything else. It has to do with knowing that we have been called to represent God through Jesus Christ and to seek to think and love and act as Christ would do. Well, if that is what holiness means, and we feel more comfortable with that understanding of it, uh, why is it that important? And uh, how does that apply to Christ's expectations of us today? This word, uh, 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 hagias, in the Greek, does mean that we're set apart. It is that we are to be distinctive. We make a difference in the community because we're God's people and because we're followers of Jesus Christ. And that makes us a very distinctive people, different from others, perhaps, but difference, different only because of our love for and obedience to Jesus Christ above everything else, above all of our other commitments. It is as if we march to the beat of a different drum, that Christ sets the agenda for our life, our decisions, our economics, our politics, what goes on in the church and in the communities that we are a part of. In the Bible, the, the words holy ones is often translated into the English as saints. Now, saints are those people who recognize they're set apart from God. Doesn't mean they're holier than thou. Doesn't mean they're some kind of super Christian. Doesn't mean that... Uh, they are someday going to be rendered in beautiful stained glass. It just means that they are intentionally God's people. They're trying to live as God's people. They're trying to think as God thinks and act as God acts in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the words of Peter spoken in this same time period when the church was being persecuted there in Asia Minor. And Peter writes saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were no people but now you are God's people ethnos hagion a holy nation a people set apart a people actually what this is saying is a people possessed by God you are God's possession the old King James Version of the Bible had an interesting expression in interpreting this. It said, you are a peculiar people. My mother loved the word peculiar. She applied it to a lot of different folks. But what's peculiar about us as followers of Jesus Christ is that we are to be God's people. And if we are, if we take that seriously, we will seem, see, we will seem different in the world We are a peculiar people. Well, if, if that is what holiness means, that we are set apart, if it's really that uh, important, is it 
is it really that important? You don't hear a lot of talk about holiness today in the church, about people seeking to be holy. There's not much in our hymnody that talks about uh, God's people being holy. There's a lot in the hymn books that talk about the holiness of God, but what about us as God's people? How are we to reflect that holiness? But just listen to some of these passages dealing with that. In Ephesians, Paul writes and says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. This calling to holiness was one of the primary intentions behind God's selection of a people who would serve his purposes in the world. Through Abraham and his descendants, you are to be a blessing to all the, folk, all the families of the earth because you're united to me and because you're living as my people. It was one of the primary reasons why Jesus gave his life in sacrifice for sinners. We read in Paul's letter to Titus, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a people of his own who were zealous for good deeds, that is, for the same kind of deeds that Jesus was doing. And then in 1 Thessalonians, we read these amazing words. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. God's will is for you to be holy and to stay away from sexual sin. That was a real threat in that era and in that culture. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, if that's what holiness means, being set apart, if it's important to God, if it's important to Christ, how does that apply to the church at Thyatira and to us today in the church? So let's uh, look at what the book is saying. The, the letter opens uh, with the risen Christ saying, I know you. He said this with the other letters as well. I know you. I walk among you. The lampstands represent each of the churches. And he first lavishes praise upon this congregation in Thyatira because of their love and their faithfulness and their service, their patient endurance in times of trial. What is more, this is a church that seems to be heading in the right direction. He says, your later works are better than your former works. So they're growing in faith and service. Unlike the church at Ephesus, their love was beginning to wane. They were going in the opposite direction. Here is a church that is making progress through the empowerment of God's Spirit. They're growing in their faith and service. They're persevering. They're being courageous and patient. And yet, Jesus does have something about this church that is troubling. So there's, there's trouble in paradise, if you will. And the issue is that this is the way it's put in this symbolic and code language. They tolerate this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And she is beguiling God's servants and teaching them to do things that make them less distinctive as God's people and also less effective in touching others for Christ. 
because of Jezebel's teaching, it may be that the church in Thyatira can blend in better with its surrounding culture, but in doing so, they are also rejecting the holiness and the distinctiveness to which they have been called in Christ. Holiness, why is that an issue? Why is that the message for this church? It seems that holiness is an indispensable attribute of the people of God. Certainly what God expects of us and something that none of us does perfectly because we are, of course, all sinners and we struggle with sin to the end of our days. But apparently, a commitment to holiness is on the wane in Thyatira. And the interesting thing here is that the threat is from inside the church. It's not from outside the church. Last week in Pergamon, the threat was an exterior threat, the worship of the emperor and calling Caesar Lord. But here the threat is from within the church. It's a heresy. And that's why the church is, uh, it's more problematic when there are the sins within the church than outside the church. Traditionally, heresy is a greater problem than paganism. And erroneous belief uh, gets more attention than disbelief. Now, who is this seductress Jezebel? And what is the nature of her deception? Surely Jezebel is, is not her actual name. But as is typical in apocalyptic literature, uh, other names that call forth certain characteristics are applied by the writer to people in their contemporary times. And John does this throughout the book of Revelation. He talks about Balaam. We saw that last week. He talks about Je uh, Jezebel this morning. He refers to Babylon and Jerusalem, both of which allude to other places, of other people. But apparently this prophetess in Thyatira has this in common with the Jezebel in the Old Testament times, one of the wives of King Ahab who was a wicked woman and tried to uh, syncretize the religion of Israel. She came from another land of Sidon when she was brought into Israel and she brought her gods with her. One of her gods was uh, Astarte. In fact, her father had been a priest to the goddess Astarte, which was one of the fertility gods. Sacred prostitution was practiced at the temples in the land and this was offensive to the prophets. And Elijah and Elisha chastise her because of her teaching and her promotion of idolatry and witchcraft. Her own father had been a priest, as I indicated. He was reputed to have murdered his way to become uh, the leader of the region of Sidon from which she had come. But anyway, she tried to introduce these foreign practices into Israel. And this was not to be tolerated by the people of God. At any rate, she is corrupting the beliefs of God's people in Thyatira. And she's getting some to come on board and be a part of what she is teaching. And as they did so, they became less distinctive, less holy, we would say, and less likely to influence the corrupt society in which they were living. Had she succeeded in her efforts in Thyatira, the church would certainly have failed there. It would have ceased to exist because we cannot continue to exist if we don't keep ever before us that we're called to be different because of Jesus Christ. We have a different set of, set of values uh, than the world about us so often. 
and that will reveal itself in time if we're faithful we don't know exactly what the substance of Jezebel's teaching was here but we know that it was not to be tolerated unnecessarily uh, it seems to be a primary thing here sexual immorality fornication sex outside of a commitment of, of marriage um, and the eating of food that have been sacrificed to idols now we've looked at these things in a previous letter we're going to look at them in greater detail in a coming letter uh, but this brings back the words of the apostles in Acts 15 when the church was moving out into the Gentile world the apostles met they wanted to tell the Gentiles what they had to do in order to become Christians and many were arguing well first they have to become faithful Jews men have to be circumcised they have to go through all the rites of Judaism uh, so as not to forget uh, to offend unnecessarily the Jews who had become a part of the Christian church had converted to to Christ and so they asked the church as it moved into the Gentile world uh, to do a few things one is to not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols which was part of the problem here and to not eat uh, an animal or, or a meat that had been strangled that violated uh, kosher requirements so as not to offend the Jewish people who kept kosher even as Christians and uh, to not practice fornication uh, there were no sexual prohibitions in ancient Greece or in uh, the Roman Empire and it was free love everywhere and for the people of God this was not appropriate that love was uh, sexual love was to be expressed now we read here that Jezebel has given time and opportunity repent to repent and God would forgive her if she did but she refused to do so and he said well he will punish her because of her refusal so we see not only God's mercy here that he gives her time to repent but also his justice which tempers his mercy now who is this Jesus that is speaking in the first three chapters of Revelation well surely he is the same Jesus that we worship and follow today in the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ as we do one of the things he says here that is so important and profound is that he searches the minds and the hearts of his people think about that Jesus searches our minds and our hearts he knows what we're thinking he knows what we love he knows what we are committed to he knows whether or not we take seriously our call to be distinctive as his followers verse 23 he searches the minds and the hearts now this is something it's kind of a side but I find it interesting if you actually look in the Greek text here what he's saying um, he searches the the nephroi which is the kidneys and he searches the cardia which is the heart the interesting thing is that these words are changed in an English translations of the Bible back in that day it was felt that the seat of the emotions was the kidney not the heart sometimes the bowels we speak of bowels of compassion so that's the part of the body that houses our emotions what we love and the cardia back in first century Asia Minor 
was thought at the center of intellectual life. But we think differently in our, in our day. We think the mind is the seat of the intellect and the heart is the seat of the emotions. We say we love with the, with the heart, not with the kidney or bowels. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Valentine next February that says, I love you with all my bowels. Kind of hard to find that. So we, we change the, the actual wording of the New Testament so that it's comprehensible to English readers of it. But the message is the same, and the point is the same. Jesus knows our minds and our hearts because he's present with us. And he knows whether or not we are seeking to honor our distinctiveness or conceal it from other people so as to blend in better with society. What does Jesus really want? That's a question we have to ask. It's been the same in every age. When I was a teenager, I read a book, I bet many of you have read it, by Charles Sheldon, uh, In His Steps. And the question that was asked is, what would Jesus do? Now, later, in more recent years, they've made bracelets out of it, WWJD. But what would Jesus do? As his followers, we have to ask that question. Now, I wasn't going to tell this story today. I was going to save it for an upcoming message, but it speaks to me so profoundly, in a humorous way, but in a profound way, too. I won't say the church or the town, but there was a town in the Delta of Mississippi in the 1960s that they were going through all the civil rights struggle. And the question became, came before practically every church, if African Americans come up to worship, are they going to be welcomed and seated or not? Or are you going to exclude them from worship? Well, this church in the Delta was having a session meeting on Sunday evening. And the grand matriarch of that congregation, who I think had been on the session at one point in, uh, in her life, one of the early women who was elected to the session, um, she was opposed to seating or welcoming African Americans. Her son now was serving on the session, and the session was going to have a meeting on Sunday evening to resolve the issue. Well, she told her son, she said, I want you to come by my house on Sunday evening and tell me what the session has decided. And he said to her, Mother, you have people coming over for dinner. Just enjoy your company. I'll tell you next week. She said, No, you come as soon as that session meets. I want to know what my church has decided. So he went by after the session met. And she said, Did the session make a decision tonight? He said, Yes, they did, Mother. Well, what did they decide? And her son, now serving on the session, said, Well, let me ask you this, Mother. What do you think Jesus would decide? And his mother responded, I know what Jesus would decide, and he'd be wrong. Now, that was kind of blatant. But sometimes we all want to put our priorities above Jesus' priorities. In the church of all places, the question is, what would Jesus do? And now when we elect elders, we make sure they understand that. This is not about simply voting your convictions. It's about voting what you think the Lord Jesus Christ would do. For we represent him. The letter closes, as do others, with promises for those who will remain faithful and will hold fast to what they've been taught. And the promises are twofold in this letter to Thyatira. One is that they would be allowed to share in Christ's authority over the nations. Now, there's some debate whether that's talking about authority right in this life 
or if that's talking about authority in the afterlife that those who've been faithful those who have been trustworthy will be given positions of authority in that kingdom that is to come now we don't know we've not been told much about that kingdom how it will be structured but there are several hints in the New Testament that indicates that those who've been faithful in little things will be faithful in greater things and more responsibility and authority will be entrusted to them the second promise is that uh, they will be given the morning star now that's a lovely and compelling expression what is that all about it may there are different interpretations it may um, be that you will you'll be victorious over Satan satanic forces evil in your life if you're faithful and an allusion to Isaiah 14 12 where Lucifer is referred to as the day star the son of the dawn and so it may be so simple as to say if you're faithful if you remain steadfast then you will be victorious over sin and evil in your life another interpretation is that this may be an allusion to uh, a section in Daniel the 12th chapter that suggests that those who are faithful will share in the glory and the brightness uh, of those who have been righteous and those who have encouraged others to be righteous there's a this I might just read that briefly it's not in my notes but this is one of the passages in the Hebrew scriptures that talks about a resurrection the last chapter of Daniel we read and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so this may be a saying here that we will be like those that we will shine like the stars of heaven if we remain faithful and influential of others and the third interpretation is that uh, we will simply have Jesus as our companion throughout our life and indeed into all eternity John himself when you get to the closing chapters of Revelation refers to Jesus as that bright and morning star so this may be that is what John has in mind here that we will be given uh, the morning star that we will have Jesus forever into all eternity so we're called to be holy holiness was disappearing in Thyatira and it's critically important even though the word holiness doesn't appear here some of you know that uh, I retired from the ministry in 2015 the act I mean the, uh, as a full-time minister uh, installed pastor and I was serving at the time in Charleston South Carolina at the first Scots Presbyterian Church for 18 years and we love Charleston and love being there and love that congregation but Charleston has a nickname you may know what it is uh, if Charlotte is the Queen City and New Orleans the Crescent City Chicago the Windy City what is Charleston it's known as the Holy City the Holy City now they say it's given that moniker because there's so many churches of all different shapes and sizes on the peninsula of Charleston I read one time that there were 180 churches just on the peninsula which is right in the heart of Charleston uh, before it 
moved out beyond the Cooper and Ashley Rivers as a city. But it was the number of churches that made it the holy city. Well, I would argue that with a fuller understanding of holy, it's not the number of churches in that town. Just having a church doesn't make it holy unless the congregants of that church are committing, committed to living faithfully and obedient as the people of God and the disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. That is the message, I think, for our church here in Greensboro. I think that's the message of God to any church that bears the name of Jesus Christ. So let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying in the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.